Hey, well, family, how's it going? Um, my name is Margot Collins, and um, I'm a covenant member here at The Well. I am also um, helping to lead the GMC, the Goer Missional Community, with my husband. Um, and I'm also a part of the South Austin Moms Bible Study here at The Well. And um, thank you. And I'll be reading 2 Peter um, 3, verses 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the prophet or the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heaven is in the earth, now exist are stored up for fire, kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day as is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought to you be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's a cheery passage, isn't it? Yeah. So last week we talked about false teachers, and then this week we're going to talk about the end of the world. Are you guys ready? When we're talking about the end of all things, uh, a lot of things might come to mind. You might think of God as a, a wrathful and judgmental God. Maybe you think of him as high above and he's going to look down and just crush you where you are. That's, that's not our God. And in fact, that's not what Peter is wanting to say in this passage. What he starts with is something that I hope will carry out our whole time together. Um, he calls us beloved. He calls you beloved. And he invites you in. And so he's addressing this to believers. He's addressing this to those in Christ. And so I don't know what words or thoughts come to mind when you think of judgment. Uh, they're usually not great. Um, but we'll get to see that God's judgment is good and perfect and reflects his character. I also know that this series is deep. And we've been wading through some tough stuff. Last week, I think there was a lot of healing that was almost kind of unlocked in this place. 
And as we remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel over and over again, we are set free over and over again, and our eyes are open to what the Lord wants to show us. And so I want to be sensitive to that. I want to be sensitive to things that you might be bringing in today. And I actually just want to pause and pray before we go into this passage, because you might hear the end of the world and fire and all of that, and you're like, I'm done. I'm checked out. I'm checking you know, whatever score is out there right now. Let's pray and let's submit this time to Jesus together. Jesus, I thank you that you love us enough to call us yours. That you love us enough to die for us and to give your life for us. For those that are even wrestling with the pain of hearing a passage like this misused and falsely taught like we talked about last week, God, would you allow them to hear from you, not from me? Would you allow them to hear your truth this afternoon, God? Lord, we are humbled to be in this moment where you speak. Even just thinking of all the times we enter this place to hear from you, would you speak in this moment? Would we feel what it means to be called beloved by you? That you love us so, so deeply in your desire is to see that all would come to you. And so I pray would you stir in us this afternoon a different view of what your coming looks like. Would we enjoy looking forward to what you have set before us, Jesus? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, this, again, is not the, the lightest topic. And, and last week, Tori went into false teachers. And it was, again, not the lightest thing that you could possibly go through. But we did hit on some incredible stuff. And so I would encourage you to go back to that sermon last week if you weren't here. Because we learned a lot about false teaching that even happens within the church. And how so much of that is based on our actions rather than what is actually being taught and here, Peter is going to kind of shift what he's talking about in a lot of ways towards some external voices or scoffers, people that are scoffing and kind of mocking and discouraging people that have heard God speak. And they're discouraging disobedience in a lot of ways. And this was written because 2,000 years ago, the church was being persecuted. And people were mocking the church. And as we just read there, saying like, hey, where is this Jesus you're saying is going to come again? And while we might have a lot of Christians or people who call themselves Christians in America, we are definitely not the majority in this place. We should be living differently because of the truth of the gospel. And we should be living differently because Jesus has said he's coming again. That should affect how we interact in our marriage. That should inter affect how we interact at work, right? Like if we actually believe Jesus is coming time begins to change. And so we'll look at that a little bit together. As a young church, we go to way more weddings than we do funerals. We don't have the end of all things right in front of us all the time. But the New Testament writers were obsessed with the second coming of Jesus. It was so tied to their hope of who he is. In fact, there's, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament and there's 300 references to the second coming. I think this is something we should be paying attention to. Second Peter 3 is a warning to those who don't believe, and it is hope to those that do. And so if you're not a Christian in here today, I want to encourage you to pursue Christ. 
because you're going to hear the good news of things coming to you if you're in Christ, but also a warning if you're not in Christ to say, hey, I need to understand where do I stand with Jesus? So again, this should call us to, to proclaim the gospel. We should live differently in that way. It should call us to honor God's character. And it should also be something that stirs up a longing in us to say, hey, this world is not what it's going to be. That there is something better than this. In every single one of us, we're trying to search for things that are going to fulfill us, that are going to numb the pain of this world. But we know this isn't it. We know there has to be more. So, would you turn with me to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. When you get there, uh, say, I got it. Say, I'm ready. Say, go Tar Heels. Um, whatever you're going to say there, just let me know that you're with me, okay? Poor Coach K, but really, I love that so much last night. Okay. So, we're going to start out by remembering the gospel. We're going to remember this good news. And, and this is really the tactic of, of reminder and remember that Peter is using. Verse 1 says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up to sincere, st- sorry, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter knows his time is short. He's an old man writing this. So he's got to impart this urgency to the beloved bride of Christ. Again, if if you don't see yourself as beloved, man, wrestle with that. You are loved deeply by God. 2 Peter 1.13, earlier in this letter, he says, I think it is right for as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. He's saying, as long as I'm still alive, I want to remind you that Jesus is coming. Peter wanted to make sure those who were kind of complacent or apathetic or maybe had drifted that way, that they'd be woken up, that they would wake up to the reality of the gospel. The word he uses, uh, sincere there, the Greek word, it's actually a reference to like clarity. And it, it kind of has to do with the sun. It's, it's meaning that one's thinking is clear, pure, unclouded. It's that you can see correctly. So it's not just a feeling of sincerity, but it's actually seeing what is really there in front of you. 1 Peter 4, 7, he, he, again, he's saying this in his first letter. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things. If Peter 2,000 years ago is saying the end of all things is at hand, do you think we are in the last days now? Absolutely. And, and we don't live like it. We don't think like that because we don't think that things are going to shift or change because we've gotten so comfortable with this life. Second Peter 1.15 says, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things. So again, he said that he wants to remind. He wants us to recall these things. He wants us to remember. Peter's plea is for a reawakening. A, a revival, if you will, individually for people. And see, often we pray for revival outside of the church. Uh, I know as a college pastor years ago, we'd pray for revival on the campus. But one thing we were missing is that there weren't people to revive. So you can't revive something that has never been alive in the first place. So when we're talking about revival, we're talking about our hearts in the church reawakening, being revived, having new breath and life in the mission of God. And so 
as we think about even praying as a church, we're praying that we would revive each other. That as you're sitting out here worshiping, that you're actually reviving people around you and blessing each other, reminding them of the gospel. Uh, I'm going to be honest. It, verse 2 has just too much to unpack for today. Uh, you can go back into First Peter, or sorry, Second Peter and look at that. But, man, we've got to get to the end of the world, and we're in verse 2. Okay, so please bear with me. I would love to share more with you on that. Let's go back to Second Peter 1, 16, Malachi. It's, it, there's a ton there, and there's a ton of promise within that. There's a ton of certainty that, that he's giving us there on the, the word of God. But again, Peter is an old man. He's been in ministry a long time. He knows that scoffers are guaranteed. He knows that doubters are guaranteed. He knows that people are going to come against the word of God and they're going to question it. Isn't that what Satan did in the very beginning? Did God really say? Did God really say? Often it comes from outside of the church. And I was tempted to say, hey, scoffers are always outside of the church and that false teachers are inside the church. But as I reflected on the scriptures this week, man, there's a lot of scoffers within our own body. We can all do that. I can do that. And so as you listen to this, don't eliminate yourself from praying, hey, do I scoff at what God is telling other people? Do I scoff at their efforts towards obedience of their king? Do I mock them or do I even mock God and how I'm living my life? In a lot of ways, we do that all the time. We, we say we believe the gospel. We say that the gospel will set people free from hell. And yet that is not enough motivation for us to share the gospel with people. We're, we're scoffing at the works of God. We're scoffing at what he has spoken. Verse 3 says this, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So not thinking of God as creator, it does two things immediately. One, it rejects the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. And two, it puts the created above the creator. These scoffers are essentially saying nature has always been doing the same thing. And so it's going to continue to do the same thing. And God's not intervening in this world anymore. But we know that he did alter the ways of nature by his word before, actually, through the flood. And he will do it again. See, in verse 5, it says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by means of the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, there's a lot we're going to unpack here. If you're somebody that doesn't worship with amen, but you worship with notes, this is for you. Scoffers ignore the facts. Scoffers ignore the facts. The first thing that scoffers deliberately overlook is the facts. Isn't this true when people come to like hate and like mock you or, or make fun of you? They ignore what you've been doing. They ignore what you've been walking through. 
they ignore the reality of the full situation. And we, we get this from Peter. Scoffers will come. They're guaranteed to come in the last days. And scoffers will follow their own sinful desire. It's from the flesh that they're doing this. And then scoffers mock God. And so we'll look at each of these together. See, Peter is saying that God will judge the world in the future. That there will be a judgment day. And I'll tell you right now, if you look at the scriptures and as you just really just understand God's heart, you know that there is a day on the calendar already. There's already a day out there. And the Father knows when it is. And so we should live differently in, in light of that. But one of these realities is that he has judged the world before. And in his mercy, he allowed the family of Noah to continue to repopulate the earth and to image him. And so he is gracious and merciful even in his judgment. But the Bible says that in the days of Noah, people were so wicked that God regretted that he had ever made man. I can only imagine what he sees when he looks at the world right now. In our brokenness and in our pain, and in the pain that we cause others too. And one day in the future, God is going to hold the world accountable again, as he did with the flood. It says that he has reserved a day in destruction. Again, this is not fun language, but things will be destroyed. But that's hopeful for those that are in Christ, because there's so much brokenness in the world. There's things we want to see things destroyed. But it should also cause us to be mournful, to have a heavy heart, because what we see is, is many people who are rejecting Jesus day after day after day. And do we mourn the fact that they are going to die and, and go to hell and be destroyed here, as it says in the scriptures? Or do we rejoice more that our lives are going to be relieved and we're going to be with God? And we get to live in that tension of celebrating that we are in Christ in desiring to see more people come into the kingdom. We should be in that tension together. I, I want to reflect on this word, though. It says, by the same word, the first thing the false teachers ignore is that God made the world by his word, that he spoke it. Again, it's re re revelation of his character. It's a display of his authority. If I walk into a room and I stand there silently and I just look at things, I can look at things and, and you know what, I'll probably judge things and I'll make a value statement on things and I'll, I'll be able to look at things, but until I open my mouth, you don't know my character. When God spoke creation into being, he revealed his character. When he created you and me to image him, he's revealing his character. And so it says by the word of God, we see that Jesus holds all of this together. And, and if we stand on the word of God and not the things of this world, we're going to be able to walk with our king, understanding that he's our king, he's our creator, as Avi mentioned, he's our father, he's our brother. He can play all of these roles, but he's created us in such a way that he knows us. And it's deeply, deeply relational in that way. This makes me think, though, that a lot of us see God as like a clockmaker that wound up the world and just let it be. And if you feel distant from God, that's just not the truth of the gospel. He wants to be close to you. He wants to connect with you as his creation. John 1, 
might be a familiar passage to you, but I want you to see this word in this passage, and it's the same as the word in Second Peter. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is not only the word, he's not only the, the one that is speaking things into being, he is the one. And this is a mystery of the gospel that's really hard for us to unpack on a Sunday afternoon. But one of the things that I want you to see in that is that he is the one holding judgment back. And when he speaks it, it will happen. But even when he's on the cross, he's withholding judgment of those that are killing him. Because he loves you. And he loves me. And he's powerful enough to hold that at bay. And he's holding back his wrath because he loves us. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 tells us more about our Savior. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is holding you together. He's holding every atom in this room together. He's doing that by his word. And we are not just beneficiaries of that. We are created for that and by him, by his word, by him speaking. The brokenness of this world is going to tell you that Jesus is not in control. The scoffers in this world are going to tell you that Jesus is not in control. Even this week in our church family, we have people grieving at the death of those in their family. And we have people rejoicing in new life in this body right now. There's people saying, God, where are you? And God, why couldn't this have come sooner? In our church family. And if that's happening just here and we see that God's holding us, his son is holding us. He's got you, you're okay, and yet he's at the same time holding back his wrath. What kind of God does that? To be able to hold back wrath and judgment on one hand, and to be able to hold and care for those who have tears this week with the other hand. Only Jesus can do that. And only he has the authority to do that because he's made us, and he's died for us, and he's risen again. We believe this. Man, scoffers mock the truth that God has spoken. If you have been scoffed at, you have probably experienced discouragement. You have probably said, hey, I feel like God's telling me to do this, and you've been mocked about that. Or maybe it's part of how you're living. I hope it is. That people who are not believers see you and they think, hey, something's different about that person. Maybe it's somebody mocking you for standing up with, for what you believe in that you're actually walking in purity, that you're maybe honoring God with your finances, that you're living differently than the rest of your family, or you're acting differently where God has you in different situations, or you're doing things actually ethically at work. Man, what if you're a light for the gospel when you're being scoffed at? 
Most of the time in scripture, when we see people being scoffed at, it's because they're actually building something that God's told them to do. If you look at Noah, man, that poor dude was scoffed at for like 400 years while he's building a boat and they'd never seen a boat before, okay? He's being ridiculed and say, hey, you're stupid. What are you doing? It's never going to rain. What is rain? Think about that. God called him to do something and he looks like a crazy person. If you're being scoffed, I want to encourage you, you might actually be following Jesus and being obedient to him. Nehemiah was scoffed and mocked for building a wall that the Lord told him to build. And if you want to go back to that series, it's a great one. Or you look at Elijah, he's mocked. And his, his God is mocked, our God, by the prophets of Baal while he's building an altar to the Lord. Moses was building a people and he's mocked by Pharaoh and even by his own people. And Jesus was mocked as he's building the kingdom and redeeming you and me. Jesus was mocked. He was spit at. In fact, they, they actually made a crown of thorns. And as Easter's coming up, we'll, we'll think about that. And what we often do is we just leave that at Easter and we forget the rest of the year that Jesus was mocked and he had a little fake crown of thorns put on his head. The king of kings had these thorns pushed into his head so that blood would run down his face. And he was spit at. The only one that did not deserve to be mocked, the only one that didn't deserve to be laughed at, was flogged and beaten. Man, he did that so you and I don't have to do that forever. He took that so that we don't. And if you're a Christian here, that is good news for you. The fact that we have a God who's willing to be mocked so that we might have life. There's no other God in the world that does that. There's no other one that lays down their life in that way. And if you're not a believer, there is time. If you are alive right here, right now, if you're breathing in this room, there's still time. The door has not yet closed. And as we look at this, we get to see in this passage that, yes, the end of all things is coming. Yes, judgment is coming. And, yes, this is hard to hear and process. But we have a God that is patient. Verse 8 says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Man, again, verse 8, we see beloved. Beloved, beloved, don't overlook this fact. Guys, we as a church, the big church, the well is also, when we don't go out living that the second coming is going to happen, we look really apathetic to the world. We don't have urgency in anything that we're doing. And you might be here saying, like, I, I just can't do this anymore. I just need to be filled up and then go out for my week. And I want to encourage you, there is more in your Christian walk than that. When you look at God's view of time, though, please understand this. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are, are way higher than our ways. I mean, think of how we describe time. You, maybe you were driving here today and you said, hey, it felt like forever that I was driving here. I mean, look at our little view of time, right? Or there's things, there's good things that happen. Man, I just wish we had more time on that vacation. 
I see some of you in here. I wish we had more time on that honeymoon. I just wish we had more time. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, you know what? I just want to get out of this as fast as I can. How do I do that? How do I transition? How do I do this as fast as I can? Or man, I I just want to get out of that relationship as fast as I can. It's killing me. I can't spend any more time in this. When we say things like that, we're revealing our view of of time. It's kind of like currency, though. Like if you've traveled overseas and like you think of like foreign currency, like you can actually buy a whole lot more in some other countries than you can here. Okay, like. Uh, I just, some of these, even as I'm looking this summer, we've got a team going to Brazil. All of the exchange rate is different. Our exchange rate with God's time is very, very, very different, okay? I mean, he just said a thousand years is a day. And, and so let's try to take that literally, okay? So uh, I just remember one time I was in Mozambique. It was $1 equaled 77 of their currency. Uh, currently, today, the Russian ruble is, it takes 85 rubles to equal $1. But now get this, the Iranian rial takes 42,000 Iranian rials to equal $1. You'd literally have to be a billionaire to buy a house in Austin, okay? You would have to have that many. You'd have to have a billion rials just to be here in Austin. The exchange rate changes everything. But what if we took this uh, end times math that we get here of 1,000 to 1 as far as time goes? That would mean that the year 2020 lasted 86 seconds in heaven. 86.04, if you want to take it very literally. Now, I think Peter is not giving us an exact, you know, conversion rate here for time in heaven. I don't think he's telling us that. So don't take that too literally. But I hope that shows you what he's trying to communicate. That if we're saying, God, where are you? Why haven't you come back yet? Why are things still so broken? Guys, it's been two days since the resurrection in heaven. His math and his calendar is just a little bit different than mine. And the fact that he works me into that calendar is amazing. Isaiah 55, 8 in the ESV says this. It's a little bit kinder. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I personally like Isaiah 55, 8 in the NLT version a little bit more, though. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond, beyond anything you could imagine. That is the truth of who our God is, but it is also true that he is a good and perfect and righteous judge who loves us. Verse 9 says this, The Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Guys, God's desire is so clear. It's so clear. He's holding back his wrath because he loves us. He loves people. And, and I hope this breaks you in some ways because you might be thinking it's impossible for some people to come to know Jesus that you know personally. But I want you just to know that if God is holding back his wrath right now, it's because there is hope for that person to come to know Jesus. I mean, think of a few names that you know personally. Think of people that you know that do not know Jesus. Do you have hope that they will come to know him before Jesus comes back? Because according to that math, he could come back any second. He desires to see people come to repentance. He is a loving, loving God. 
And let's not just put away his, his wrath and his judgment and his second coming and say, man, all that fire stuff is just scary. I don't want to deal with it. But it should propel us to share the gospel with people with the hope that he is coming and that they can go with us. And that there's a hope that they might come into the kingdom. This is good news for the beloved. That is you. This is terrifying news for those that don't know Jesus. It is terrifying news for 3.2 billion people who have not had access to the gospel around the world. What do we do with this? It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. God has to be true to his character. God must respond to sin. To do otherwise would just be like a policeman looking the way when a crime happens, right? Not actually acting on justice. True justice is part of his character. So we should not be surprised when the Bible says that the Lord will take vengeance. God's judgment is not a joke. This fire, though, it's not just fire like we see fire. It's a purifying fire. He's cleansing everything. All sin will be exposed. Again, if we're in Christ, that might be comforting. If you've been wronged, that's comforting that sin will be exposed. But if I stood up here before you and I just started sharing all the things I've ever done, ever thought, I was completely exposed, how do you think I would feel? Exposed. And so would you. And he's going to expose all things. That should change the way I live. It should humble me. It should make me think, man, my crown is not as important as Jesus in his crown of thorns that he already wore for me and for you. That I can lay things down. I can lay my name down before him and say, here you go. Do with this what you will. If everything's going to be exposed, should you live differently? Man, we are covered, though, by him. We are so covered by his love and by his blood. And as we sang earlier, that the blood applied, it was applied to our hearts. Don't just sing that, believe that. Last week, we, again, we talked about holding on to Jesus. I want to challenge you, hold on to Jesus because he's already holding on to you. He is the only one who is holding you together. If you think you're holding yourself together, you have got it so wrong. You can't create yourself. You can't hold yourself together. You don't even tell yourself when to breathe. He does. Because he loves us so, so deeply. Verse 11, 13, he gives us things to do, Peter does, so that we can walk in them. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How on earth am I going to dwell where righteousness dwells? Only if Jesus, the righteous one, covers me and covers up what is exposed and just like he did in the garden for Adam and Eve. Since they were naked and ashamed and he covered them. And he's doing the same thing at the end of all days. We're to live lives of holiness and godliness. How should we live? Man, we, we really can 
live godly lives because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So what are we then to do? We are to wait for and hasten his coming. I love these, love these two words, waiting for. We wait with anticipation. You don't just stand at a bus stop all day if that bus isn't going to take you where you think it's supposed to go. You wait with anticipation. We wait with purpose. We live differently because of what we know is coming. We're prepared to do, though. I mean, if you're getting prepared for Jesus coming, you're going to live differently. I think one of the gifts that the Lord gives us by not telling us exactly when he's coming is so that we can't run around and try to fix everything. Because if I said, hey, guys, noon tomorrow, Central Standard Time, Jesus is coming back. What are you going to do? Well, in this gathering right here, you might say, you know what? I'm going to go share the gospel with everyone I know. Anyone I walk by, I'm going to do that. And that, that I hope that part of that is true. But if you're not already doing any of these things in preparation for the second coming of Jesus, it should allow you to question how you're living your life, actually. Because most of us would go grab people we know, we'd hug them, and we'd say, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to be terrified. But if we're in Christ, there is a hope. Guys, Jesus is coming. He's coming tomorrow. Are you ready? He's coming. Are you excited? Oh, my gosh. We're so excited. If we're in Christ, and there's such a difference in what would happen if that news came forth. But God doesn't want to give us that so that we can just act on that information. He wants to see where our hearts really are. He wants us to wait, anticipating and hoping because we love him. He wants us to be ready. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Friends, are you ready? And the reality is only Jesus makes us ready for his coming. Are you submitted to him in that? Again, for the Christian, that should be comforting news. Jesus is coming. And if you're in here today and you're not a believer, it might make you feel really uneasy. Or if you're questioning your faith, man, it might make you feel uneasy. And there is hope for you in that. For those of us that are in Christ, we need to hasten his coming. We get to partner with God in the redemption of the world. As I've researched a lot of this the last few weeks, it's so clear that God is waiting on the church to be the church. He's not just holding back his wrath. He's waiting for us to partner with him and co-create with him. That's what he's wanted since the very beginning. He's wanting us to be the ones to welcome people in. And he wants to use us broken and, and fallen people to do that. Another interesting thing we see is, is not just God's heart for the nations that we've talked about before, but there's this echo from Peter back to the ark once again. And if you remember at the ark, he says, hey, we need two by two of every kind. Two by two. And that might be a children's story to you, but I would encourage you go back and look at that in Genesis 6. What he's doing there is he's foreshadowing that some from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be entering before the door of the ark is closed. 
And he's inviting us to go rally up and invite people in. I mean, look at this. It says in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Mark 13, 10 says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Are we broken over this? And do we realize the partnership that God has invited us into? He says he's coming again, and yet he's waiting for us to partner with him. We as the church, we as beloved, we must remember that he is coming. We must remember and live in light of his coming. Verse 13 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friend, this is good news for us. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus is dwelling there. We are invited in to dwell there because he's made you and me righteous. There's no more striving. There's no more pain. There's no more tears we see in Revelation. But we get to rest in him. But we should live in anticipation of this hope that we will dwell with him in righteousness. All of the injustice of the world, all of the brokenness, all the false teaching we talked about last week, all of those things will be put aside and it will only be righteousness. He's the one who's purifying us. As we close out today, I hope that we can remind each other, not just of his coming, but what he's done for us. And so we're going to do something a little different as we close. We're going to go straight into our communion time together. And I want to challenge you as you look at your communion and you've got your cracker and your juice that this was done by Jesus. And he tells his disciples to remember this, to remember him as often as they do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so for us, church, we need to remember what Jesus has done so that we can anticipate his coming. Before COVID and before all of those things, when we would do communion, we would do them on tables around the room. And it was a really beautiful thing to see families going up and taking communion together, to see community groups going and taking community, communion together. And there was this thing that was happening where we were getting to see other people be humbled before the Lord. And then we were humbling ourselves and going up and saying, I remember what he's done for me. I remember what he's done for me. And so as an act of that, of reminding each other and stirring each other up, if you're a couple and you're sitting together and you want to take communion together, I would encourage you to just stand where you are and pray for each other. Maybe you haven't done that in a while as a married couple. I want to encourage you, go ahead and do that where you are and take communion together. If you're with some friends from a community group, go ahead and stand where you are and take communion together remembering what he has done for us on the cross so that we might look forward with anticipation for his coming. So as I pray, feel free to stand, pray for each other. We'll have some time of worship for you to reflect on what he's done for you so that you might anticipate what he's going to do when he comes.
Jesus, may we never grow weary of reminding each other of the good news of the gospel. May we never grow weary of reminding each other that your body was broken for us and that your blood was shed for us. May we stir one another up to remember this good news. Even now, as we remember what you've done, would you bring people to mind that we can hasten your coming, that we can share the gospel with, that they might know you, Christ. Would you stir up people in this room to even go to the nations to say, I want to be a part of ushering in this day when Jesus will return. That our desire would be that every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship the name of Jesus. That we would hasten the day of the Lord, waiting with anticipation and proclaiming your good news. Would we continue to pray and wait earnestly for you? And would we proclaim this gospel that you have given us so freely?